0: So today we're continuing on in our series in the Ten Commandments, and I I have to begin um, our our sermon this morning is specifically on um, abstaining from adultery, and I have to begin with a confession, which probably isn't what anyone wants to hear on a sermon on this topic, but please don't go that direction. It's not not that. No, I, I have to confess that I don't know that I have ever given my wife a greeting card, I don't know that I have ever given my wife a greeting card. I've written her notes. I'm getting neither a head shake nor a head nod from her, um, which probably means it's accurate or she doesn't remember. Praise God. I don't believe I have ever given my wife a greeting card. In general, I am, I am horrible at greeting cards. I don't know why. My parents were always really good at greeting they're, they're amazing at greeting cards. They send me birthday cards, and they're always hilarious. They make me laugh every time. And yet, for some reason, I have never reciprocated to my knowledge by sending greeting cards really to anyone. In fact, in general, if anything uh, ever seems courteous or kind or thoughtful that comes out of my family, it's probably com- coming from my wife or my kids, and probably not from me. Um, and, and of course, you know, you know, you have the hallmark, uh, you have the hallmark um, logo slogan, right? When you, when you care enough to send the very best. So uh, apparently, I don't care enough to send the very best. <laughs> um, they also have another, they also have another unofficial slogan, right? A greeting card for every occasion. Well, it's interesting. There's one LA woman by the name of Kathy Gallagher who, as she looked at Hallmark and looked at their various options. She disagreed with them that they actually did. And she found a hole in their lineup. She felt like, as she looked at the broad spectrum of greeting cards, that there was something missing. An opportunity for those who were in adulterous relationships to have greeting cards specifically tailor-made for them. So she started her own line of greeting cards, specifically for those in adulterous relationships. Um, With things like, my soul has been, so this is on one of the cards, my soul has been searching for you since I came into the world. All my life, I've had this emptiness inside, like a part of me was missing and I was incomplete. And now I can't imagine my life without you, dot, 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 even if I have to share you. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. In um, commenting on why she created these cards, she said, I was thinking, so how do these people, um, at the time she had friends who were in adulterous relationships, I, I don't know if both spouses were or not, but she had friends who were in adulterous relationships, and she said, so I was thinking, how do these people communicate in a secret love affair? So I thought, oh my gosh, what better way can you do that by, than by giving someone your sentiments in a greeting card? How special is that? <laughs> For real, that's really what she said. That's a direct quote from her. It's amazing. It wouldn't have been very long ago in our, in our culture where I think, I believe that would have been an unthinkable thing. And yet now, someone not only had the idea, but they've actually turned it into a business and are actually making a profit on it, which just goes to show the course of our the course of our culture when it comes to marriage. Um, as I as I looked around online, and mind you, I was pretty careful about looking around online for these topics. Um, but as I was looking around online at statistics and such, um, I saw different numbers. I saw different numbers representing the uh, representing how many are actually currently in adulterous affairs. But at least on the low end of the spectrum, I, the number twenty percent kept coming up, that around 20% of marriages suffer from adultery, and those numbers aren't going down. Um, Lots of other numbers also come up. It's interesting to note, uh, this this part's not too surprising, really, um, that there is a higher tendency for men to be in adulterous relationships than women. That's probably a little bit less surprising, unfortunately. Um, It's interesting to look at the ages that people are when they begin these adulterous relationships. There's a little spike for those who are in their 20s, but actually, interestingly enough, it's those who are in their 70s and 80s who probably have one of the biggest spikes in terms of adulterous relationships. There's a little bit in midlife as well. Um, one One of the few common denominators, well, it also doesn't tend to make any difference about your level of education, Um, it doesn't make a huge difference in terms of your politics, it doesn't make, uh, most factors in life don't actually make a whole lot of difference in whether or not you're going to be in an adulterous relationship. The one factor, and I found this from a website that is not Christian, um, one factor that does actually diminish the likelihood of one being in an adulterous relationship is whether or not you are a regular attender to a religious, um, uh, of a religious institution. Regularly involved, they didn't say church, but regularly involved in church is the biggest factor that diminishes the likelihood of adultery. So we're continuing on today then in our series on the Ten Commandments, or as we've been, as we've been referring to them, the Ten Great Freedoms. The Ten Great Freedoms. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at the Seventh Commandment, or again, the commandment about adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Apparently... Apparently, God isn't surprised by infidelity. God isn't surprised that this would be a a major cultural thing, that this would be a struggle for people. And so God spoke into it. In fact, God has a lot to say about adultery. So this morning, we're going to spend a little time looking specifically at the freedom to fight for fidelity. Fidelity. Again, our Ten Commandments, these are coming out of Exodus chapter 20, Um, so this morning we'll be looking specifically at verse 14, though it is quite brief. Again, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to be in your word, Father, and to hear your will God, your will for our marriages, your will for our lives, your will for what we are called to. Lord, I pray that you would work so powerfully in our hearts this morning, God, that something like an affair, something something so illicit, Father, would just be abhorrent to us. God, that it would be disgusting, that it would be filthy, that we would, that we would fight against it, Lord, that we would long to serve you and to live lives oriented to you and to your will, God, because there's nothing more glorious. Father, please just draw our hearts to yourself. Please convict us with the power of your word and work powerfully through your spirit in us during this time. God, we pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, so again, we're continuing on this morning with the Ten Commandments, looking specifically at the Seventh Commandment, or one traditional way to kind of break up the Ten Commandments is to talk about the two tables of the law. The first table, Commandments 1 through 4, are dealing specifically with us and our relationship to God, so they're more oriented in how we relate to Him directly, while the second table of the law has more to do with though it certainly has to do with our relationship with God, it it tends to focus more on our relationships with one another. So we're continuing on, specifically in the second table of the law, looking at human relationships. And again, just like the past couple of weeks, our command is very short this morning. In Hebrew, it's actually only two words. In our English text, at least in the English Standard Version, we have five words, you shall not commit adultery. Now, As we've been making our way through the Ten Commandments, we've seen these kind of broad brush descriptions of life for what God has called us to, for how we were meant to live. These things, these commandments, they're not meant to be burdensome. That's one of the reasons why we framed the series as the ten great freedoms. They're not supposed to be burdensome. They're not supposed to be weighty. Rather, rather what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to lead to human flourishing. They're for our good. They're for our enjoyment. They're, they're meant to bring life. And they're meant to bring life to the fullest for those who practice them. God wanted the very best for his people, so he shares these ten great freedoms with them. Right? And it's not too surprising that the God who made us would also explain to us how he made us and what he's calling us to, right? I mean, even my car comes with a manual on how to use it rightly. Even my manual comes with, with instructions about, oh, well, you should get an oil change every so many thousand miles. And that's not a, that's not surprising. We should expect that. And then it's ironic that I think when most of us look at hopefully when most, most of us look at it, we take note of when we should get oil change. And, and that's not burdensome to us. I mean, it might be a little annoying, but it's not burdensome to us because we want our cars to last and to function. And what happens when we don't get the oil change? Well, your car doesn't last. And, and I've had a few friends go through that experience, and they weren't excited. That was not fulfilling for them to have to deal with a car that was now out of oil and uh, the need for a new engine. So so when we look at things like this they're not supposed to be burdensome rather they're actually supposed to give us life and help us to live it to the fullest. So our commandment to abstain from adultery is in the same vein. Specifically narrowly the focus of this commandment is against the physical breaking of the marriage relationship. Don't destroy marriage with an affair. Don't destroy don't cheat on your spouse right? It's not confusing. It's fairly forthright, really. But at the same time, there's so much more that we can unpack from this statement. There's more than just that. Broadly, all of the Ten Commandments are really kind of giving principles. They're giving broad principles on how we should live life. At times, maybe they might sound a little bit narrow in the way that they're framed, but really, there's supposed to be an ocean of depth behind them so while this commandment doesn't explicitly cover much ground on other sexual sins, it certainly has implications for a broad spectrum. The fact that illicit sex makes it, makes it into God's top 10 ways to destroy your life shows us that God actually cares a ton about our sex life. He actually cares. It's actually really significant in God's eyes and plays an important role in protecting marriages. This has important implications for the misuse of sex in general, using it in ways that it wasn't meant to be used. This includes premarital sex. This includes homosexual sex. This includes a whole host of things that I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on today because I'm gonna try to stay a little more focused on where I think God is doing with this commandment. But there are so many, there are so many ways. We are so creative. We take the good things of God and we, we use all of our best imagination infused with sin. And we come up with so many creative ways to actually do damage to God's gifts. And praise God, throughout scripture, we see tons of different commands, tons of ways that God is attempting to deal with these things. So certainly God's word has so much to say about sex and how to use it well. Um, Our problem, our problem culturally isn't that we make too much of sex, rather it's that we make too little of it. We cheapen it we cheapen it we destroy it whereas god actually has great plan and a great goal for your sex life so please don't take this passage in exodus 20:14 as being all of god's commentary on sex he's actually got a ton more but i think really at the heart of the commandment and really where i want to focus our time and our energy the primary purpose here is really marital fidelity it's really about marriages. This, this, isn't, this verse isn't primarily first and foremost about sex. It's first and foremost about protecting marriages. This commandment is a celebration of marital fidelity and what we have been called to and the way that marriage impacts so many other things. So many other things. God has a glorious plan for your sex life in marriage. In marriage because marriage is amazing. Because marriage is glorious. And God wants, God, God wants for you to be able to enjoy your fullness in that. So why? why? Why does God make so much out of marriage? Why does he put so much emphasis on it? Well, to really get to the heart of it, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. So it's a beautiful passage talking about the creation of, of Adam and Eve. So, uh, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. All right, pause just for a second. This, I always, I always love this. Okay, so question. Is man alone there? Rhetorical question. Please don't feel the need to answer. The answer is no. He's not alone. Who, who's with him? God. God you guys, you guys answered, but that, that's okay because it was a great good answer. Um, God was with him. And yet even though God was with Him, even though God was with him, God still declared you're alone. There is something there is something that you are missing that I am not going to fulfill for you in our relationship. I am going to bring along something else. That is a really really bold statement that honestly makes me feel a little anxious even saying it up here. But God was going to bring something else along because God declared you are alone. And what is God going to do? I will make him a helper fit for him. So he is going to bring someone along for Adam who is uniquely fit for him, who's uniquely made for him, who will bring something into his life that was currently missing. Now, out of the ground, verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found, again, there's that expression, a helper fit for him. Though there's, again, he's even less alone now, right? There's all of these creatures. There's all these things. God has brought them. And yet, God recognizes this isn't it. This isn't it. There's something better. There's something better. There's something that's going to be uniquely fit for man who is going to complete him in some way, and it's not here yet. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. All right, so he actually took something out of man. He, t- he removed a rib from him. He removed something from him to fix the problem. Verse 22, and the rib that the, Lord to, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, actually, pause. No, notice what doesn't happen here. God doesn't come to the man and say, ta-da, I have made a helper that is fit for you. <laughs> Adam doesn't give him a chance to say anything because there's a naked woman in front of him. What does Adam say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam knows immediately, immediately, this, this is what I've been waiting for. A helper that was fit, that was made for him in a unique way. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So, this is interesting. What did, what did God do? He took, he took the rib from Adam, he took from Adam, and not only, not only did he take from Adam, but see, see, what, um, see what man calls him. He calls, he calls the woman woman because she was taken out of man. So it's fun. Our English actually does a good job here. In Hebrew, um, man here is called Ish, and woman is called Isha. Isha, so it's a play on words. She is called Isha because she is taken from Ish, Okay. So so actually, in our English language, using woman and man is helpful because it maintains the relationship of those two names. Because she is taken from him, they're still connected. They're still connected even by very name. And then what happens? God brings them back together. They become one flesh. So it's interesting. So the very first marriage isn't a union. The very first marriage is a reunion, it's a reunion. God has taken them apart, and now he has brought them back together. They have been made in a special and unique way to be able to come together to, so that man is no longer alone. They complete, they complement one another. God took what had been one, he separated it, and he brought it back together, one man with one woman. And every marriage since then has been steeped in this picture of reuniting, reuniting so that man, so that ish was no longer alone. So the very first, the very first, the most fundamental human relationship was the marital relationship. It's interesting. It's not parent and child. It's not not friends. It's spouses, the very first human relationship with spouses. That's where it all begins. Humanity has had marriage knit into its DNA from the very beginning. And the reason, the, this is the reason then why marriage is so ubiquitous. You look at different cultures throughout history and you always see marriage. There is always this, this thing that's built into us, as humanity, that marriage is constantly there. And interestingly, not only is marriage universal, not only is marriage universal, but adultery is always universally seen as a bad thing. Across cultures, across time, adultery is recognized as being an abhorrent thing. So the, a, a few places throughout Scripture, we see adultery described as the great sin, which is interesting in God's word that adultery, adultery of all the things would be labeled as the great sin. But what's maybe even more interesting is that the Bible's not unique in calling it the great sin, we, have, uh, we actually have other ancient texts. We have Egyptian texts, we have Ugaritic texts, we have other ancient texts from other different cultures that also refer to adultery as the great sin. Humanity didn't actually need God's special revelation to declare to us that adultery was evil and sin because it's built into us at the very creation in the garden when God created the very first marriage so that we would know intuitively, so that we would instinctually know across all humanity that adultery is wrong and that marriage, there is a unique sanctity that should accompany our marriages. So, which even if those cultures that don't know God, if even they recognize, if even they recognize that adultery is bad, how much more should we be aware of that reality? How much more should we fight for the sanctity of marriages? Now, I, I do want to have a brief aside, because I recognize in our congregation, not everyone in here is married. There are all kinds of stories, there are all kinds of backgrounds, there are all kinds of reasons, and so I I do want to recognize that as well. Though marriage is built into our DNA, and certainly the expectation is that for most, for most of humanity, it's the way that a majority of life would be lived, that is not the only way to have a fulfilled life. Marriage is not the only way. As though if you're not married yet, you can't have a fulfilled life. Or, or if you've lost your spouse, well, then the, the, your chances for a fulfilled life are gone. That is certainly not the case. It is, it, it is the only way that I can live a fulfilled life because my wife is over there. But second sermon, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll be a little bit different. But it's the only way that I can have a fulfilled life. But it's certainly not it's certainly not the course for everyone else. Many significant figures throughout history have been single, including obviously Christ himself. Um, Paul also was single. In fact, not only was Paul single, but Paul actually advocated for the advantages of living the single life in First Corinthians chapter 7. So please don't hear me. Um, marriage is the normal lifestyle for most but it's not for all, and even for you singles, there's so much that can be gained from this commandment. This commandment is not only for those who are married amongst us; it applies. It certainly applies to all those who are not living the married lifestyle. But moving on, we, we find another important passage. We find another important passage for understanding the reason for God's valuing of marriage in Malachi chapter two, verses thirteen to fifteen. Malachi is especially important because it drives home that marriages marriages aren't only built into creation, but we see here that there's a societal significance to them. Uh, Beginning in verse 13, and the second thing you do, all right, so this is a rebuke from God, and the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why does God not accept our offering? Why is God ignoring? Why is God silent to us? Um, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. All right, so we're talking about adultery here. Um, They have not been faithful to, to, to their spouse of their youth, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So it's interesting because we often talk in marriage ceremonies and such about weddings, about marriage being a covenant. So we get that from places like here, Malachi chapter 2. Um, verse 15 Did he not make them one? So husband and wife, did he not make them one with a portion of spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So it's not just the physical union that we see in Genesis, but it's even the coming together through covenanting together, through making sacred vows and promises to one another. This is, these are all sociological um, um, categories, making vows, making commitments to one another, and this is what we do. So again, in the wedding ceremony, this is what this is what the husband and wife, what the bride and the groom are saying to one another when they make these vows that I'll love you and I'll stay with you even in sickness and in health and in etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. They're making promises. They're making a covenant together. This is what you can expect from me. This is what I expect from you. We're making a covenant that we're going to continue on. And here we see in our passage that God is a witness of our wedding. He's a witness of these vows, which is also interesting. So in a traditional marriage, oftentimes the, uh, the, the groom and the bride will come forward. And for, about the, first half of the, uh, for the, about the first half of the ceremony, the bride and the groom actually face the pastor. And they make promises directed more towards the pastor. And the reason for that, his, historically, is because Is because the pastor is representing, in some sense, God in that scenario. So as they're making promises, looking directly at the pastor or the officiant, they're making those promises to God. And then at some point in the service, they will turn and they'll face each other and they'll make more promises directed at one another. Again, this is because of the covenantal nature of marriage. So this is covenantal. It's sociological right? It's the, as we saw back in Genesis chapter 2, they are the very first unit of humanity. The very first people are spouses with one another. The most fundamental sociological um, structure isn't government, right? Government wasn't the first thing that was made. Rather, the most fundamental sociological unit are spouses, our husband and wife, and everything is built on top of that families. Families are expected to be built on that. We see this in Malachi, that from this, from what was intended to be a godly marriage of a husband and wife, there were supposed to be godly children who were going to come forth from this godly marriage. Families were built on it, and on top of that, society was built on top of it. Think about it. When Moses is being given this commandment by God, God is establishing a new nation with these Ten Commandments, So in his top 10 ways to establish a new nation, he incorporates this element about fidelity in marriage. Why? Because that is so important, not just for you, not just for your family, but even for the entirety of the nation, which is probably one of the reasons why the consequence of adultery was so significant. The consequences, if caught in adultery, is death. It's death. It's that, it's that ultimately you would be executed for your affair. Adultery was pernicious, not just, not just to the victimized spouse, but even to, the, even to the society as a whole. It affects everyone. So healthy marriages are a craving in us by nature from, very, from, from the very creation and essential for health of our society. God has made us in our society to function in light of marriage. Healthy marriages lead to flourishing, our own flourishing, the flourishing of our children, and even the flourishing of our society. But, and this is cool, God has even a bigger purpose for marriage. God's got even a bigger purpose for marriage. Healthy marriages point to a greater reality, something greater. Marriage is just a microcosm of a greater reality. It's a shadow of an even better substance the substance of which is Christ and the church paul unpacks this in ephesians 5 beginning in verse 22 wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior so in other words so in other words marriage marriage paul sees marriage here as a metaphor for an ultimate, a greater reality, the reality of Christ and the church. Now, verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. This is a model of what husbands are called to, self-sacrifice. I get so many questions from husbands about what does it mean to lead and what does it mean to, to, to be the head of my home? Well, the answer is sacrifice. You give up, right? You give up for the sake of your family. That's the fundamental way that you can lead in your house. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even, so Paul's saying, even Genesis, even Genesis, going back to to the commandment that, that a father, that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, points to Christ and the church. Our marriages are, a, are bigger. They're, they're bigger than Adam and Eve. Marriage is bigger than Stephen and Catherine. Your marriage is really bigger than you. It's not about you at all. Well, maybe a little bit. It's about God. It's about God. It's a picture, your marriage is a picture, a thin, shadowy picture of the love that God has for you and for the relationship that he's open to us. Therefore, a breakdown in marriage is actually an affront to God for many reasons, but one is, again, because it's supposed to reflect him. So that that in the midst of, of David, David from the Old Testament, in the midst of his affair with Bathsheba, What does he cry out? He cries out in Psalm 51 in the midst of his repentance when he finally comes to his senses and realizes how horrendous his sin has been. Psalm 51, he says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin.'" For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse four, actually pause. So in case you're not familiar with David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, right? He, Bathsheba is married to Uriah. David sees her and decides he wants her for himself. He goes, they have an affair They have an affair while Uriah is out serving him in battle. She becomes pregnant. And so David, to deal with his sin, I'm sorry, no, because he doesn't want to get caught in his sin, he has Uriah murdered out on the enemy lines. He has Uriah, her faithful husband, wiped out. In the midst of that, right, verse 4 Against you, God, against you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David, in the wake of his affair with Bathsheba, cries out to God that God is the one he has primarily sinned against, and he's right. Certainly, he sinned against Bathsheba. Certainly he sinned against Uriah. He sinned, he sinned against many other people. And, and in fact, this has consequences, not just for him, but even for the nation, as we've talked about previously. But still, first and foremost, first and foremost, his sin is against God. And that's true. That's true. Our fidelity or infidelity are not first and foremost about us, They're not even about the spouse that's injured. They're not about the kids that have to suffer and the consequences of it. They're not about the the, the community that suffers. It's first and foremost about God and a sin against him. So Christian, your marriage and your fidelity are not primarily about you. Affairs happen when we turn off our sensitivity to others and we think only about ourselves and our immediate gratification. But you're created for something so much more. You're created for something that is so much deeper, so much richer. First and foremost, your marriage is meant to be a reflection of God and his goodness and his graciousness and his tender love for us, for his bride, for his church. That's what your marriage is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a testimony to the world about how great our God is. That people would look upon our marriages. the people would look upon the marriages in the church. And they would, they, would, they would be overwhelmed by the reality that you serve an amazing God. That your God must be so great if your marriages can look like that. That's the purpose of your marriage. Your marriage is to make much of him. Your fidelity is a reflection of his fidelity to you, and your infidelity is sacrilegious, a besmirching of God. So what does this look like? How do we live this out? How do we honor marriages? I mean, so <laughs> instead of trying to tell you what to do to get a perfect marriage, A, because we don't have that kind of time, B, because I, I don't know, obviously. Um, so, so instead of focusing on that, I, I, I want to focus, focus on three kind of general spheres, three general areas where we can fight for marriages or we can fight for fidelity. Number one, fight for fidelity. Are you actively seeking to fight fidelity in your marriage. A fundamental step in protecting your marriage is protecting yourself from sexual sin. Are you engaged in the fight to protect yourself from sexual sin? Sex was intended for marriage. Sex was intended to strengthen marriages, to be enjoyed in that context. So we need a people who, we need to be a people who are pursuing sexual purity any use, any use of sex outside of marriage compromises everything that we've been talking about. Any use of sex outside of marriage compromises everything that we've been talking about. That goes for both marrieds and for singles. In fact, listen to Jesus' application of this, of the seventh commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, Jesus states, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, right? He's quoting, he's quoting the commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's his application of our commandment. Our commandment has implications, not even for just what we do, but even what we think, even where we look, it applies to everything. Pursuing fidelity doesn't doesn't just have implications for, for what you're doing, but has implications for how you think and how you feel and how you orient yourself. So it means that don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. It means that no matter what you do, in this world, we need to be protecting ourselves. We need to be protecting ourselves and cautious because sexual sin is waiting to jump on us. And just as, just as Joseph had to flee Potiphar's wife, we also need to be the sort of people who are willing to flee, who are on guard to flee those situations. So often it might begin so innocently. So often it might just slowly creep in somehow into your life. We need to be cautious. We need to be cautious in how we handle ourselves with the opposite sex. Where are there relationships? Are there friendships that have started to develop that maybe are teetering on the edge of something more? Are we being cautious? Do we have safeguards in our life? What about, what about your internet usage? Are you being cautious in how you use the internet? There's so many different areas of life. For those who aren't married, are you being cautious in how you interact with the person that you're dating? Do you have safeguards? Do you have standards? Do you have expectations for how you're meant? Because if you don't, if you don't have safeguards in your life, you will stumble and you will fall into sexual temptations. You will give in to these impurities if you're not safeguarding yourself. Number two, we need to be those who are supporting marriages. We need to support marriage, marriages. Um, this commandment is given specifically, remember, this commandment is given in the context of community. Violation of this commandment didn't just have impact on, on, on the people who were involved in it immediately, but even on the community. So how are we as a community actually supporting marriages? Do you ask your friends? Do you talk to your friends about their marriages and how their marriages are going? Do you encourage them towards healthier marriages do you pray for other people's marriages? Um, when hard things come up, when, when, when red flags seem to be there, are you bold enough to actually say something to your friend about their marriage? When was the last time someone asked you about your marriage? Um, I was really encouraged. I was really encouraged. My uh, my doctoral my, my advisor for my doctoral work, um, he's, uh, man, he, he's, I think he's in his late 70s, maybe early 80s. Um ne- never been married he he chose intentionally to live a celibate lifestyle um, his name is uh, his name is Peter Adam he's a scholar in Australia. Um, one of our very first interactions so he doesn't have children, never been married. One of the very first interactions I had with him was he wanted to find out what my life was like with my family and what our family devotions were like that's cool he rightly recognized this need to support marriages because marriages are so, so significant. He wanted to know what my marriage was like and whether or not there was faithfulness there. That's the right kind of question to be asking. Are we those who are supporting marriages? And number three, are we training for marriage? One final thought is that we need to be thinking about the next generation. Now again, marriages aren't the be-all and the end-all. It's not, it's not a place where everyone finds their purpose and where everyone lives a full and, and fulfilled lives. But for the majority, marriage will be the major portion of their life. In parenting my kids, in parenting my kids through the years, I've been pretty cautious. When we talk about marriage and we talk about kids and things like that, I have always been very cautious to couch it as if you get married and if you have kids and avoided things like when you get married and when you have kids because who knows? Who knows what the Lord has for them? I certainly don't know maybe they won't be married maybe they won't have children so i always try to be cautious on that front but at the same time we also need to be those who are training our kids who are talking about marriage who are talking about what it means to be a good spouse to one another who are training because again we live in a culture that actually produces that actually produces greeting cards for adulterous relationships Right? If I'm not training my kids, if we're not training the next generation for how to do marriage and how to do it well, our culture certainly is. Our, our culture has a ton to say about marriage and sex and how to do that. And it certainly doesn't align with Scripture. So if we aren't proactively, and I'm not saying waiting until they're a teenager, I'm saying from the earliest possible age, if we're not actively engage in training our children for what healthy marriages look like, then we are doing them a disservice. Our culture will step in, and they will tell them. They will tell them. They will feed them lies. There are probably so many other ways this passage could be applied. Um, But at the end of the day, are we working hard, prayerfully committing ourselves to be a community that cherishes marriages and that wants to see them utilized for God's glory? Are we fighting to see this as a place where marriages are championed? Are we training our children and preparing them for marriage? Or are we more informed by the currents of our culture and our own sin that's devastated so many marriages? Let's be a people that cherishes the freedom to live lives of fidelity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this commandment to us. Lord, I thank you for the plan that you have for our marriages, God. I pray that you would just work so powerfully in them. God, Lord, for our joy, for the joy of our children, but even most significantly, for you and for your glory. God, I pray that um, for those who are struggling, for those who are in the midst of sin, even now, listening to this message, God, I pray that your spirit would guide them to full repentance, Lord, and that we would all be those who seek out to live lives of fidelity to our spouses, and even more importantly, to you. God, we pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good day.